1: Hi, I'm Dexter Fergie, and you're listening to New Books in History. Today, I'll be speaking with Diana Lemberg about her exciting new book called Barriers Down, How American Power and Free Flow Policies Shaped Global Media. It was published last year by Columbia University Press. Lemberg traces the history of the free flow of information, an idea that has guided America's relations with the rest of the world since World War II. It's also an idea that seems benign, perhaps even difficult to disagree with. I mean, who could possibly oppose the freedom of information? But as Lindbergh shows, the idea certainly wasn't always benign, and throughout the latter half of the 20th century, many stood against it. Lemberg examines how American businessmen, statesmen, and social scientists sought to tear down barriers to transnational flows of information and in the process, maximize the spread of American content overseas. As Hollywood films and American news inundated the rest of the world, foreign governments saw this as a loss of sovereignty and fought back. This book should be read by anyone with an interest in U.S. foreign relations, communication studies, and how ideas shape international norms. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm speaking with Diana Lemberg about her new book, Barriers Down, How American Power and Free Flow Policies Shaped Global Media. Thanks for being on the show, Diana. Thanks so much, Dexter, for having me. Yeah, your book packs a lot of punch in its 200 or so pages, so we're going to have a lot to discuss. Um, But I want to begin with um, how you even became a historian. Um, What pulled you to doing a PhD in history in the first place?
2: Oh, that's a good
1: question.
2: I think I I had always loved um, libraries and archives. Mm. Something about the smell, the dusty smell of the paper, to be honest. Um, <laughs> um, and my, my first job was actually in a library. It was I was a, a shelver. So I think I think it was really um, a love of archival research combined with a kind of growing sense that I had in high school and especially in college, that history was a really powerful way of understanding the world, like understanding how we got uh, into our current political and economic sort of situation. Um, So yeah, I, I, it was that, that combination, the analytical power of history plus my um, sort of eccentric love of archives
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you did end up going to a university with an exceptionally beautiful library. So <laughs> I don't know if that featured you into uh, your deliberations and choosing the program, but you know, the library's Library um, is famous for, for um, uh, its beauty.
2: Yeah, they, they were renovating it for part of my time there, but I
1: did get to enjoy like
2: the stained glass uh, windows and the kind of cathedral like atmosphere for part
1: of the time. So good. Good. Um, So, yeah, so uh, um, this book began as a dissertation when you were a student at Yale. Um, And it's also a dissertation that I actually read when I began my own PhD. Um, So can you just share with listeners how you envisioned the project when you began your dissertation and and, um, how you turned it into a book? That's a good question. I think
2: I kind of started the project with um, a curiosity about um, the idea of like the free flow of information, it just seemed pervasive um, not only in some of the sources I was reading in some of my early graduate seminars on like u s international history but also in in secondary literature i I saw that it was deployed sort of without um, analysis and of course, as historians, we often have to we often you know, make use of concepts um, in that way to sort of frame um, phenomena in the past analytically um, in ways that our, our subjects wouldn't have used. But I think I became sort of curious about why this, why this concept of freely flowing information was so pervasive and when it, um, you know, when it really sort of came to be. So the project kind of started with that I don't know, um, fixation of mine. Um, and when I initially began um, in grad school, I was sort of looking at it from a transatlantic perspective. <clears throat> this was true in the dissertation because a lot of my archives were, um, were European archives. And then, um, then the, 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 project of turning into a book was, Um, was somewhat contingent as I think it is for most people on sort of my like professional path after grad school I sort of had done a lot of research in Europe then I came back to the, the U.S. and I was on the market for a year and very much by fluke I got this job in Hong Kong and so my sort of I sort of had to hurry up and finish the dissertation really pretty quickly without doing some of the research that I wanted to do in the United States so I was lucky in that the, um, Hong Kong has pretty generous research funding for, for faculty and especially junior faculty. And I was able to like go back to the U.S. and do archival research for a semester um, to kind of fill in the fill in the book um, or to turn it into a book.
1: hmm. Yeah, no, I think that archival depth, um, uh, it's really apparent in the the, the book itself. Um, So I'm glad that you were able to take that time to um, uh, do that research. Um, So you begin the book with uh, a discussion of one of your actors, um, Kent Cooper, um, and his Mm -hmm. philosophy of the free flow of information. Um, He was one of the first to really articulate this idea. um, And um, so I think he'd be a really good person for us to start our conversation with. Um, and to kind of get into the the broader themes of your book, so who was Kent Cooper? What were his concerns about information barriers, and what did he mean by free flow of information?
2: Yeah, that's a, he's
1: a great person to start with.
2: Um, Kent Cooper was he was a, a journalist and a news agency um, a news agency man who was head of the Associated Press in sort of the early to mid twentieth um, century. Of the interwar period through the 1940s. And um, Cooper was, had been, by the 1940s, which is sort of when the book picks up, Ken Cooper had been sort of preoccupied by um, a problem affecting American news agencies trying to operate overseas, which was that uh, news agencies in the 20th century could only sort of distribute their news in certain markets. There was an industry-wide cartel led by Reuters, the British British agency. Um, Havas, the French agency, also participated. And so did so did um the Associated Press, which Cooper was head of. And so while the AP was participating in the cartel, at the same time, Cooper was sort of chafing at this like restriction of his potential market. And he he makes a fuss about this sort of continuously in the interwar period and then the second world war comes and it's like this this opportunity for Kent Cooper who sees the news cartels as essentially having prevented people in Germany from gaining access to good information they were they could only access by you know by 1940 um Nazi propaganda that's what had driven them sort of into the war. And so this was Kent Cooper's um, somewhat strange explanation for at least part of the start of the Second World War. Strange to our ears, I suppose. Um, and so he, he pushed for the U.S. or the policy community in the United States to take up the banner of the free flow of information or freedom of information Sort of after the Second World War, as a as a matter of national policy, um, and even though he was Ken Cooper was he was he was basically a libertarian. Um, he he opposed government involvement in the news in most cases. He was all about free markets, but he he did want he did support a, a U.S. commitment to freedom of information, for instance, um, in the international forums that were developing in the 1940s, like the UN.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the, the free flow of information sounds, I mean, it sounds, it sounds good, it, you know, how can you disagree with it? Um, but it turns out that um, uh, the, 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 the the meanings that people invested with um, it, it with um, really made this idea quite contentious um so um you know kent cooper as you are um uh you know explaining he represents a really distinctly american perspective um but i i'm curious what um non-americans or how non-americans approach the question of the free flow of information in this time period
2: yeah that's a that's a good question so cooper yeah cooper was was in favor of sort of stripping away regulations that um prevented american uh, news people from accessing foreign markets and in this in this quest, he was sort of joined by people in in the film industry um, and radio who wanted access to foreign markets, um, particularly the film industry um, and so when the United States sort of starts to starts to pursue these aims after the war, um, they run into. Any number of people who are saying, "Wait, wait! Um, freedom of information is not necessarily just about you know s- stripping away your barriers to uh, market access." One of the opponents of U.S. policies was a guy named um, John Grierson, who had a had a very different vision of sort of the possibilities of media. He was a Scottish um, film filmmaker, film producer. He's actually very well known in sort of film studies for being an early um, like theorist of documentary film. He had spent the war in Canada, as as you probably know. Um, <laughs> and <have> <laughs> <laughs> and um, he was working for the Canadian government, helping to organize like wartime information efforts. And Grisham, he basically become and he also was involved in this. Um, in sort of American discussions of press freedom at the time. And he, he becomes this big critic of, like, American power in the post-war world. Post-war world. Um, he says, basically, you know, the U.S. is consuming most of the newsprint in the world at a moment, like, right after the war when um, a lot of countries couldn't get newsprint. They didn't have the dollars to import um, newsprint and Gruson says, "Look, if people, you know, can't, don't have newspapers to read because all the newspapers have closed because there's no newsprint, then what what kind of freedom of information is that? If if the United States is um, consuming so much of the world's newsprint, so there were these alternative visions of of information freedoms. Gruson's was more sort of materialist, I would say. Yeah, and he actually gets red baited." For it, um, uh, So, yeah, so the American kind of uh, vision for it is not the only game in town.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I, I, um, uh, I was really struck by your discussions of um, Grierson and others, um, uh, how just in this post-war moment, this time when, um, you know, the, the Americans like um, uh, Cooper and others are articulating the, the free flow of information um, there's this like material obstacle um, namely just like the lack of newsprint in um, uh, in Europe um, and elsewhere um, that actually um, as you put it made this flow into a trickle um, but uh, um, uh, what was a barrier for the Europeans was not seen as such um, for the Americans I mean you actually you, you have this uh, uh, this fact this, this statistic from um, UNESCO that really blew me away, which is uh, um, in 1950, Americans were consuming 56% of the world's newsprint, um, whereas Europeans were consuming something like 22%. Um, and, and those numbers are staggering.
2: Yeah, that was I, that was one of those archival kind of discoveries that I made um, that I just sort of, the newsprint crisis in in Europe was so little discussed. In I guess especially in Americanist literature, even though there's a there's a a big literature on sort of the Marshall Plan and the need for aid, um, this struck me this newsprint crisis, which lasted for you know many years, like just like rationing of food in Europe lasted for many years after the war was over. Um, newsprint was scarce sort of into the early 50s, and it was rationed in, in various places, and so. Um, I, yeah, I I felt like it was one of those kind of stories that I sort of had to tell in the book, because it really did shed light on the ways, you know, freedom of information can mean um, a lot of different things to a lot of different people.
1: Mm -hmm. So an important assumption um, in your book is that the concept of information is historical. Um, Can you say something about um, what information meant to people before um, the, the time period that you're looking at? Um, and um, how the concept was changing in the nineteen forties.
2: So, information—it's uh, one of those concepts that seems self-evident to us today. It refers—you uh, know—you can sort of use it as an abstract term to refer to um, any any sort of media, whether it be film, television. Print media—you can refer it to whatever you glean from those different kinds of media. Um, but it, it this usage is actually fairly recent. The linguist Jeff Nunberg has written about how information used to have a much more sort of normative um, connotation. Like there's a quote from a great quote that he has from—I think it's from a Jane Austen novel. I forget which one, um, where a character is saying is calling someone a, a man of information. And the character, it, the character doesn't mean that the person, you know, has a lot of social media accounts. <laughs> the, what, what the meaning is that this is a person who is sort of learned or has been instructed in, you know, the liberal arts, something like that. Um, and it's really only in the early to mid 20th century that we see a shift a more sort of content neutral understanding of information and an understanding that you know, not only print media contains information, but that other media such as film and radio, later on television and um, digital media also contain information. This shift is, I think it's there are a couple of factors behind it. One is this nascent civil liberties movement in the u s, which slowly sort of starts to make the argument that other media besides print media deserve first Amendment protections because they these media also transmit information and here the their contribution in the war effort, like the contribution of Hollywood and um, the radio industry, is crucial because then those industries themselves can make the argument, well, look we you know, made these great war films, um, we deserve to be considered informational media, not just entertainment. Because at that time, they didn't have, you know, film didn't have First Amendment protections. Um, so that's one factor behind this transformation. The second is, is technological. It relates to um, developments that were happening in the 40s in um, sort of Engineering and cryptography, the mathematician Claude Shannon was very influential in developing what became known as the the mathematical theory of communication, in which he basically defines information in terms of bits in terms that like computer scientists would recognize today. And so Shannon, you know he he says that he he doesn't intend his theory to be um, a statement about, content or messages but his ideas about information quickly get taken up in the social sciences and sort of spread after um after his work is declassified in the late 40s and published and so these changes are sort of what what bring about the contemporary um sense of of information that we have today which is broad it's not medium specific And in the computer science sense, at least, it's, it's purely quantitative.
0: It's a matter of bits or it can be purely quantitative. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's so fascinating because it, it really. Um, uh, I mean, as as you um, you know put it, uh, information is this almost self evident concept, um, but uh, you know as you show and as other historians are starting to show, um, it really does have a history um, uh, you know this this um, uh, this concept was historically produced um, so just going forward a little bit um, the way I read your book is uh, a lot it's, it's about how um, actors in um, the u s and in europe um, uh, conceptualize barriers to information. Um, uh, And so sometimes in the case of, um, you know, like the the, the newsprint shortage, um, Europeans see this as a barrier, whereas Americans don't. But then the next barrier that you um, uh, take your readers through is the barrier of language, Um, and more specifically, multilingualism and, um, uh, you know, the absence of a universal global language. Uh, Can you talk about Efforts to rectify this, um, uh, you know, this like quote-unquote problem um, in, in the post-war period.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So um, the, the term language barrier actually becomes popularized in the in the post-war era um, for exactly the reasons that your air quotes suggest, in that this only the language differences become sort of turn into language barriers once Americans start taking an interest in distant places in, you know, Asia and Africa, where they've sort of never had a presence before. Um, So in terms of American interest in spreading the English language as a kind of global lingua franca, you know, there there is a a prehistory to this in American efforts in Puerto Rico and and the Philippines to make English into like a language that, you know, everyone had English classes uh, to make, to make it the language of education in these colonies, or in the case of Puerto Rico territory. Um, Would these efforts really gain steam after the Second World War, um, partly because of the the push to decolonize or the wave of decolonization that sort of sweeps across Asia and then Africa in the fifties and sixties suddenly the U.S. sees a lot of opportunity in these places to spread its influence. It's also really afraid of Soviet um, influence, Uh, and so this this in part explains um, yeah growing American interest in spreading English and English gets. Um, English teaching gets institutionalized like in a a whole host of U.S. government agencies, USIA, USAID, Peace Corps, Fulbright, um, as well as some of the big private foundations, Rockefeller and Ford are both interested in language teaching overseas. Um, And another sort of piece of this growing American interest in global English, is, uh, of course, like development, the idea of development aid, and the idea that, um, you know, Indonesia or um, Vietnam, they need American scientific and technical expertise to modernize. Yet, you know, if you have people who you can't communicate with, you can't share scientific information with, um, that's going to be a big problem. And so um so that's that is sort of part and parcel of these efforts by USAID agencies to um mm-hmm. spread English.
1: Mhm. Yeah, no, uh um that was really compelling um sort of the the role in uh, the role of development um as um sort of a a vehicle for expanding English. Um there, you have a an amazing quote from a USAID report um, in 1967, which says that English was the common instrument best suited to transferring needed knowledge, skills, and activities to the third world, um, and so here you can see that um, you know, like English was becoming the language of development.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and and this really you know concerned some of the um, some other countries, including France, who could you know, France, for instance, could see its. Or was afraid that its influence was gonna, its cultural influence was gonna slip away in its former colonies. So it you know, it's pushing to spread um, French in a kind of parallel francophone universe. Um with, with some success, although uh, you know, clearly the the sheer power of the US economy and the US government backing um the promotion of English and development. Are, are I, th- I think part of why um, you know we can go to other countries and, and speak English pretty
1: easily today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so uh, moving on to um, the next chapter, um, which deals with development a bit more um, specifically. Um, so you know, development has been a, a rich subject of study in recent years um, for historians. But you reframe its history in terms of information uh, and you show how um, the concept of development um, had these inbuilt assumptions about um, information, Um, for example, you know, um, in regards to, um, you know, communication technologies, literacy, um, you know, access to information. Can you talk about these connections between development and information? Um, And uh, it might be a a good place to start with um, the really fascinating UNESCO film, Television Comes to the Land.
2: Well, I think it's funny because I think that in the historiography of development, which is is really rich at this point, it's a little bit um, like, set apart from the work of media studies scholars on development who have sort of addressed the role of, um, of information and development. I'm thinking of like Emilio McEnany for instance. Um, but yeah, I, I was, I was interested in, um, the role of media information, especially because it plays such a central part of some of the early like modernization texts, like Daniel, uh, Daniel Lerner's passing of traditional society, where it, which is basically all about the impact of media um, in in a in Turkey to like modernize people's attitudes. So the interesting thing about that book, or one of the interesting things I think, um, was that was this connection between like you know individual experience and consumption of media. And these really large-scale processes uh, that the U.S. government wanted to pursue in, in its global struggle for hegemony with the Soviet Union, um, you know, Lerner was basically saying, give people more newspapers, more radio stations, uh, and they're gonna they're gonna modernize themselves, and that's what this film television comes to the world, which which UNESCO. Um, produced in it was the late late 50s early 60s <clears throat> uh that film is also sort of saying the same thing that you know just give people this window and onto the world in the case of the film it was television and they're gonna you know see how people live in cities they're gonna see modern appliances and they're gonna want that's gonna give them the incentive to try to modernize themselves. So. Um, so I think what part of what was interesting to me was in looking at this was what consensus existed um, in internationally about these issues. You had buy in not only from u s experts but from European experts who were you know who wanted their countries to sort of maintain economic and cultural influence, even when their empires their formal political control um was was crumbling <clears throat> and then of course in the developing world um development brought the promise of aid and so um you know many at least in the early 60s many developing world elites were enthusiastic about development aid um so that was one of the things that moment of consensus in kind of the early 60s that i found uh, that I wanted to explore more.
1: Uh, yeah, no, I mean, like, what that chapter reveals to me is that um, like modernization is all about information and access to information and uh, you know communication technologies and um, yeah, going through um, uh, you know these like um, really big thinkers, or representative thinkers such as Daniel Lerner, that's really evident. Um, uh, and so uh, I was um, uh, really interested in 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 um, your information take on development. Um, so then the next um, stage of your book, or the next uh, chapter of your book, is about communication satellites. Um, and so they play a really big role in the history of the free flow of information. Um, and uh, they were, at first, uh, U.S.-driven development. So what did American policymakers and business elites hope to accomplish with satellites? And um, what did the rest of the world think of these satellites?
2: So... When early satellite technology was first developed, early communication satellite technology in the early 1960s, the U.S. quickly became the preeminent power in this technology. The Soviet Union, of course, also had satellites. It had launched the first satellite uh, with Sputnik in uh, 1957. But the U.S. quickly sort of becomes um, dominant in communication satellite technology. And for U.S. policymakers, you know, this is very tantalizing because communication satellites had the capacity to not only to sort of beam signal around the world, they also had much greater channel capacity than existing um, uh, cables, undersea cables. And so, you know, the, the U.S sort of policy elite community, both in government and adjacent to government were, were really excited about this. They thought it would be a way to encourage people to speak English. They thought it would be a way to sell their um, television programming overseas. Um, there was just a lot of excitement. But for the rest of the world, this picture was less appealing because uh, other countries couldn't build or launch their own satellites for some time. And the, the launcher for communication satellites was a particular um, problem through the 1960s. You know, no country in Europe could, um, could launch its own satellites. And so, you know, even for the, US, US, the United States' closest allies in Western Europe, they were alarmed by U.S. dominance, and so they they start to sort of, you know, complain that the U.S. is basically controls this technology um, more than it should. Um, so there's that piece, and there, and there was an international sort of push for um, regulation that I talk about in the book, and a second part of the international response is the will to have their own satellites, to have regional satellite systems, you know, so you'd have France and Germany collaborating to build a Franco-German satellite that could sort of compete with us satellites on a regional level eventually. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're they don't want to be left behind by U.S. technological prowess. That was a big fear.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and can you say a bit more about um, the question of sovereignty in satellites? Um, uh, because, I mean, that's that's a really fascinating bit to this chapter. Um, just uh, what satellites really meant for sovereignty and more specifically information sovereignty.
2: Yeah, sure. And I should say, too, I, I sort of I, I skipped this point. Um, a second ago, but for U.S. policymakers, they saw satellite transmission as a way of, like, opening up information flows, and they increasingly in the 60s, and especially in the 70s, they begin to say, you know, you, you shouldn't regulate the transmission of um, satellite, the information from satellites between, um, between countries. Um, and so... For the rest of the world, this doesn't really seem like free flow. it seems like a threat to their sovereignty. It's difficult to remember, but you know, through the 1960s, most countries had public television broadcasting and outside the Western Hemisphere. Even Britain had a, a broadcasting system in the BBC that was sort of much more governmentally um, managed. And subsidized. <clears throat> and so, and, and so, you know, they're afraid of, um, they're, they're afraid that satellites, particularly satellites that had the capacity to beam signal directly into homes, just sort of on the horizon in the 60s and 70s, they see that as a threat to their sovereignty, a threat to their ability to kind of manage the information that their um, citizens are consuming. On television and otherwise, um, so so this the U.S. gets some pushback for its interest in satellite broadcasting, especially its interest in direct satellite broadcasting. Again, those were the satellites that um, would be able to beam signal directly to individual users with dishes, bypassing. Um, like national communications infrastructure that that earlier generations of satellite had used, um, <clears throat> so the U.S. gets some pushback about this, and it, instead of um, conceding to international uh, calls for regulation, it basically decides that what what needs to happen is that regulation itself uh, needs to be sort of. Peeled back um, internationally.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think it's um, uh, it's a really interesting story, and um, you know, just to uh, I'll, I'll just mention here that I'm also working on this question, so I found this chapter exceptionally useful um, for my own uh, self interests. <laughs> um, but uh, so, so, just like moving on to the the 1970s. Um, you track a really interesting uh, um, shift in uh, beliefs among social scientists, American social scientists, um, from sort of this like state-powered modernization, which we were talking about about your development chapter, um, to a belief in a tech- technology-powered modernization. Um, and there's one individual in particular, um, uh, Etiel de Pool. Am I pronouncing his name correctly?
2: Oh gosh, you know, I admit the first name. I'm not I'm not sure, okay. but we can just call him DeSola Pool.
1: DeSola Pool, perfect. So uh yeah, so th- this this um individual embodies this shift. Can you just share with listeners um who DeSola Pool was, uh how his thinking changed, and um how he kind of represented the um the zeitgeist of American social science in this period?
2: Yeah, sure. He was a, a fascinating and kind of slippery character. Uh, who who's sort of best known for two things. The first is being a, a real war-, war hawk in Vietnam in the 60s, a real advocate for the use of social science research for government and especially military purposes. Um, Joy Road has has written about this phase of, of de Pool's career. And secondly... In the 1970s and early 1980s, he sort of changes tax, and he becomes a real advocate for communications um, deregulation and uh, an advocate for unreg- unregulated information flows, both domestically and also abroad. So we see this shift, like you said, from um, a de Pool being kind of conventional supporter of um, You know, government-led modernization to this um, this person who really was was a backer of like market power as the engine of progress. Mm. Um, And I look especially in the the book at this article he wrote uh, in the late seventies that talks about actually television in Vietnam. Again, he was like intimately involved with the American war effort in Vietnam. And he says something interesting about television there. He says, you know, what television in Vietnam revealed to us is that there was this audience that was sort of untapped, that was hungry for American and Western programming. There was essentially unmet demand. I think he uses the phrase unmet demand. Um, so he basically is treating television in Vietnam as a kind of market mm-hmm. um, and an illustration of why, um, you know, like um, unregulated information flows are a good thing. But what he doesn't mention in this article is that the the quote unquote market in Vietnam for television was totally created by U.S. government and military spending, mm-hmm. Um Television was sort of forcibly introduced in Vietnam by the US military uh, in, in the sort of 66 or 67. Um, its initial broadcasts happen from planes because the transmitters weren't ready when they wanted to introduce it from Defense Department planes. Um, so it's really it's you know mili- completely militarized and in no sense like a free market. Um, and yet that's how Pool is treating it. So by the 1980s, he he writes this pretty famous book called Technologies of Freedom that is primarily oriented towards domestic deregulation. Um, De Pool is particularly concerned about regulation of new digital technologies that are coming into being at that time in the early 1980s. Um, but the book also has implications for um international communications in that he sort of treats most regulations on communications as a, a threat to the First Amendment, and that includes um regulations by foreign countries to stop satellite broadcasting. So and, and this book is like Kind of a a it it's part of the zeitgeist, as you said. The word is apt in the early nineteen eighties as Ronald Reagan is coming to power and is um, you know sort of dismantling regulation at the FCC, Federal Communications Commission, um, and it's really a kind of remarkable pivot that the solar pool makes from modernization to um, sort of technologically driven. Uh, information flows, but it's one that's sort of representative of like a broader political shift.
1: Mm-hmm. Great. And so, as we're approaching the end of your book, I just have a couple more questions. Um, the the first is, having gone through all of this history, um, how should we think about the relationship between U.S. power and information?
2: Well, I think in part. The book is telling, um, almost telling the story of how we got to the 2016 election or the situation in 2016 where information flows from overseas actually impacted the U.S. election, Um, you know, through social media, through um, sort of cyber warfare by the Russian government through, um, you know, teenagers in places like Macedonia um, discovering that fake news is profitable um, and posting it on social media. Um, so in one sense, the book is telling the, the prehistory of that because these policies mm-hmm. that the U.S. pursues uh, to increase global information flows, to deregulate them, are, you know, they're they're sort of opposed by a lot of people in a lot of different places in the mid to late 20th century who understand that information can be a threat to things like sovereignty, election security. And the US, you know, the US government is very involved in uh disrupting other countries' sovereignty when it wants to during the Cold War. So 2016 kind of marks the moment when this this reality comes home to roost in the United States where the U S is experiencing what a lot of other countries have experienced um, in the, in the preceding decades. Um, However, I do think, you know, that, that U S power can have, can, can be used um, in ways that might support civil liberties um, abroad, you know the recent Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, which um, ensured that the U.S. was going to monitor um, civil liberties in Hong Kong, among among other things. Um, it's I think that the the post forty five period is when the U.S. kind of becomes becomes interested in such issues. So the the record is sort of ambiguous in that regard. Mhm.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, uh you you managed to answer my second question um with that answer um so <laughs> um so we'll leave the, our conversation about the book there. Um we always conclude our interviews though with the question um but what you're working on right now?
2: Oh, um so I've got a second project that I'm that I've started it kind of takes off from the, from the, the book in, in that um, it's about language and language training. Um, And I'm looking at how uh, the U S government became involved in language training in, especially after or during World War II, because there were all these strategic languages that it didn't have many people um, who spoke or understood And so it got involved in, um, this massive effort to train soldiers in Japanese, for instance, uh, later Russian, and then these sort of defense investments filter into the civilian sector, um, after the war. So that's, that's the current project sort of on applied linguistics and U.S.
1: power. That sounds really interesting. I look forward to, to reading it. Um. Again, I want to thank you so much for being on the show, Diana. It was a real pleasure to discuss your book.
2: Thanks so much, Dexter. I really, uh, It was really great to have this opportunity to talk about the book with you.
1: Great. And I've been speaking with Diana Lemberg about her book, Barriers Down, How American Power and Free Flow Policies Shape Global Media. And you've been listening to New Books in History.